Last week, last week we were talking about the limits of words. And I wanted to kind of follow on from that point because I think there's another important angle um, to look at this. We talked about the fact that it's so hard to communicate. I mean, I don't know about you, but in relationships, from here, uh, in everything that we do, communication is really difficult, you know, and that's under the best of circumstances. But circumstances aren't always ideal, are they? When emotions are spiking, when people are being triggered, then pretty much communication goes out the window. This is when we're talking about concrete things, things that we can see and taste and smell, relationships and politics and finances and and parenting, whatever. But when it comes to the things of the Spirit, we have a whole different bar to climb because the things of the Spirit, by definition, can't be reduced to words. The Spirit, by definition, stands outside of space and time and, and anything that is finite, like our minds or our languages and logic that we would use to try to describe something. So, when it comes to spiritual issues, we have an experience, and then we want to express it. And all we've got to use is words. But the words are inadequate adequate to express it. So what we're trying to do is the best approximation, the best expression of the inexpressible when we're trying to express spiritual things. You know, this is what we were talking about last week, because what happens is we have an experience, we express it, and we express some truth that became knowable to us, became revealed to us in the spiritual experience that we had. And if that truth is deep enough, if that truth is universal enough, then the expression gets repeated and repeated over and over. And as it gets repeated, it gets shrunk down to its essence. And it becomes what we call an aphorism. And an aphorism is a short, I love this word, pithy statement, you know, that contains some sort of general truth, right? But then the aphorism is repeated over and over and over again until through familiarity and constant use, it becomes meaningless in itself. And that's what we call a platitude. Now, platitudes are dangerous because... They give you the impression of wisdom, but the wisdom and the truth has sort of been leached out of it as it goes through time. And the most dangerous thing about a platitude is that we think we know what it means, but we really haven't explored it. And the truth of the matter is, if we haven't experienced the truth ourselves, then what we think that expression of a truth means is always just an interpretation. And we won't really know until we express it ourselves. The, the interesting thing about platitudes, the interesting thing about hallmark sayings is that they, t- they tend to be true. That's how they got to be platitudes in the first place. They're true, but they're completely unhelpful at the same time in terms of taking us where we want to go. And so this is what we were talking about last week. My favorite example, and I wanted to do this with you just so you can see what I'm talking about, is that 1 Corinthians 10.13. And you can look up on the screen, I'm sure Gina. Gina doesn't have Brandon today, so she's soloing it back there. So, God bless you, dear. Um, she's going to get it up there. And you can look in your, in your uh, inserts. 1 Corinthians 10, actually 12 to 14. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, that 
whole passage, repeated over and over and over, gets condensed down to, God will never give us more than we can handle. And that fits neatly on a bumper sticker. So we like that, right? But notice what is happening here. We have two very different meanings from what Paul said originally to what eventually became the aphorism and then the platitude. Look at what Paul is really saying in that first line. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed he does not fall. He's saying, don't try to stand on your own strength. Don't try to do this on your own. You're going to experience everything that everybody else experiences. You are going to, as everyone else is going to be, pushed to your limit, absolutely to your limits. But if you're the kind of person who has learned to lean into God, even at the most difficult times, even under extreme duress, you still lean into God. You voluntarily and vulnerably stay open, even in painful moments, even under this stress. You will come through because God is faithful and the means of escape will always be present to you. All right? So, notice this. The onus is on us. This is not a passive statement. This is an extremely active statement. We are the ones that need to avail ourselves of the escape that God has already given us in his presence in every moment. We are the ones that have to lean in, move past the fear, move past the pain, open back up into a vulnerable position so that we are permeable, so that we can understand that spirit is with us, even though everything in us wants to just crawl into that defensive ball. But the aphorism applies exactly the opposite, that it's God who is giving us the hardship in the first place. And how exactly do you trust a God who is giving you the hardship? Why? Just to test you? Just to discipline you? To grow you up? You know, Which is fine if you just lost a parking space, not so fine if you just lost a child, right? So this is what we're talking about here. The aphorism is applying something that Paul is not implying. And then... God is also the one who's going to just give you enough pain. He knows exactly where that line is. You don't know, but he does. And he's going to play that game. Very different statement. It takes us from the active leaning into God, staying present, to just a passive, fear-based experience. And this is the problem. We say that so easily. And it's supposed to be a statement of hope. And yet really underneath It's doing different work on us. Take a look at the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message. He does such a good job. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. So, my very dear friends, when you see people reducing God to something they can use or control, get out of their company as fast as you can. Now, it's fascinating how he translated the word idolatry. He translated idolatry as people reducing God to something they can use or control. That's perfect. It's exactly what an idol is, isn't it? As soon as you put edges on it, as soon as you put a face on it, it's something that you can deal with. It's something you can control. 
Get out of there as fast as you can. It's perfect. So this is an example of what happens when we take a spiritual truth. That came out of Paul's experience. It came out of the collective experience of the churches that he was dealing with. These people were being persecuted. These people, life was difficult for Christians in the first and second and third centuries before Christianity became a state religion of Rome. And so they were dealing with this stuff daily. They were being pushed and pushed and pushed. But his experience was, as long as you kept leaning into God, everything was going to be okay. But the aphorism takes all of the truth, takes all of that connection out of it. So it's hard enough to communicate spirit and spiritual experience when we're honestly trying to do so. But how about when we're not? How about when, when we're trying to hide behind some kind of spiritual phrases or spiritual platitudes? You know, I know none of you have ever done this. <laughs> but how many times have you heard people use platitudes to justify their actions, to procrastinate maybe, right? To gain advantage, to end some kind of, of disturbance or cognitive dissonance. They just want to put a, a veneer over it. And so they use these phrases, you know. And it's not that they even realize that they're doing it. It's not that we realize we're doing it. These things just become second nature to us and just roll off the tongue, become absolutely automatic. I told you the story last week of someone that I was talking to who confessed how guilty he was feeling. His son just got put into jail. And he is just so numbed out, he is so done, that he doesn't even want to go visit him. And he says, I feel guilty about that. And the first thing out of my mouth is, you've got to let go of that guilt. You know? And then I caught myself, you know, like telling a depressed person to snap out of it. You know, it doesn't work that way, right? It was an inane thing to do. It was a damaging thing to do. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I wanted to take them back. You know? So then I stopped and, and said, okay, wait a minute. Let me explain what I mean by that. And we talked through it in a way that hopefully was a little more helpful. But you know what? That's grief. That's guilt. That's just going to have to be something that is worked through. But at least if we have some sort of process, there's a chance. But I, the first thing I did to I went to the platitude. There's someone that I was talking to a while back who um, lost a series of jobs and was finding himself unemployed and was having a really hard time. And I said, well, what's the plan? What are you going to do? And his response to me was, time will tell us what God's will is. Okay. And so I said, well, you know, there's a friend of mine who always used to say that God can move mountains, but somebody's got to bring a shovel. So prayerful planning is still okay. It's not a sign of faithlessness to prayerfully plan. There's still something active we need to do. But to just lay that veneer over to give virtue to procrastination is not what we're about, not what this life is about, not the relationship that we have with our God. In terms of social media, you're seeing what's happening out there. People attacking each other viciously. All in the name of defending the faith, right? All in the name of defending their interpretation of Scripture, their church's interpretation, or whatever it happens to be. But here we are tearing each other apart, using Jesus, using God, using our faith, using our church to do so. So words and phrases 
and aphorisms, as they come through and become acculturated here, they become a kind of doublespeak. And I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but doublespeak is something that was used and kind of started with George Orwell with his newspeak. But the idea is that language that is supposed to be saying one thing but is actually obscuring or, or distorting or actually reversing the meaning of the words themselves. And that's sometimes what these aphorisms do. you know. And not only for the hearer, but also for the speaker, because these things become so automatic. I found, a, just to give you some more examples, I found a list of what is become Christianese talk, you know, this kind of, of, of jargon or doublespeak. Have you heard this one, the Lord works in mysterious ways? The translation is, I'm totally clueless. If it be God's will, the translation is, I really don't think God's going to answer this one. Lord willing, you may think I'll be there, but I won't. That's not my spiritual gift. <laughs> you know, it's not my spiritual Find somebody else. <laughs> you just have to put it in God's hands. Don't expect me to be helping you now. I don't feel led. You can't make me. God led me to do something else. I slept in instead of going to church. <laughs> she has such a sweet spirit. What an airhead. Bless his or her heart. What an idiot. I have a check in my spirit about him. What a jerk. <laughs> I have, uh, I'll be praying for you. Oh, that's a good one. There's an outside chance I may remember this conversation later today. I'll pray about it. That's a classic one. means not a chance. Um, prayer requests are gossip. God wants to prosper you is really code for give me all your money. And finally, I'm waiting for God to open some doors means I'm living in my parents' basement. <laughs> now, these are funny and they're lighthearted, but you know what? These kinds of phrases used can really hurt. They can really hurt. Because what they signal often is that the relationship is not what we thought it was. That the relationship is not tight. The relationship is not caring, not loving, not safe. And we use these phrases to kind of paper over that, to make nice as we go through. But what it really points to in the long run is that they're not going to be there for you. We're not there for each other. And this is actually subverting, in the name of Jesus, everything that Jesus was about, everything about his way, everything that he was trying to teach us in terms of how to go through life in kingdom, how to go through life as his follower. Jesus is constantly fighting against the, the Judaese, if you will, the doublespeak of his day. Take a look at Mark 7, starting at verse 9. This is a classic one, but there's just literally dozens of them in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And at this one, he's talking to the Pharisees. This is a, a really sharp exchange that he's having with them. And he says, you are the experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, the Judaese of Jesus' day was the oral tradition that the Pharisees had developed over a couple hundred years to that time. And it was all of the traditions, all of the rules that they put around the written rules and it was creating this incomprehensible mess for the people that they had to try to abide by. And of course had to go to the Pharisees in order to have the law interpreted, have the oral tradition interpreted, which was what gave them all their power. So he tells these people, these Pharisees, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. 
and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. So this word korban, which means a gift, which means a sacrifice, which means an offering, was a formal way that you could declare a certain portion of your estate, your income, your resources off limits because they were going to be dedicated to God. And therefore you are no longer responsible to honor your father and mother and to care for them in their old age and to do everything that needed to be done to honor them. And this is anathema to Jesus. This is the doublespeak. It sounds virtuous. It sounds like it's full of God's grace. And really all it's doing is feathering their nest in some way. And when you find out, it's devastating. Devastating. My mom (laughs) was a devout Catholic her whole life. And uh, when I left the Catholic Church, of course, she was horrified. And... um, Every trip up there, Marion and I would go up. She was armed with all the tapes and all of the the hand uh, whatever, tracks and all these things because she was trying to get me to come back into the into the one true church and and it was just it was really uncomfortable for a while there. But um, one of the things that she said to me that will stick to me forever. She was saying, "You know, Dave. I think she called me David. Actually, probably David Mills. You know, David Mills. Being good is not enough." And what she meant by that was being good, being a good person, following the law, following all of Jesus' commands without the baptism in the one true church, without following the precepts of the church, the sacraments of the church, everything that the church ordained was not going to allow you to be accepted by God. You know? And I had to consider that. I had to think about that. You know? I ultimately rejected it, but, uh, but it was something that raises the question, what is enough? What is enough to get us accepted by God? What is enough for us to know that we know that we are connected to our God? That we know that we know that we're a true follower of Jesus. What is enough? If being good is not enough, what is enough? Well, we should go back to Jesus. What did Jesus say? Take a look at uh, John 13. Starting at verse 34. This scene is right at the uh, Last Supper in John. And Jesus is talking to his followers. This is where Monday Thursday gets his name. In Latin, it's mandatum novum, which means a new commandment. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I don't know if you remember, those of you who grew up Catholic, I'm sure you remember, there was a Catholic priest in the 60s who wrote the song, We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. Remember that one? They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. That's actually a condensation of what Jesus just said here, right? At John 13. Is that really enough? That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Yeah, I know he said a lot of other things. But when it comes right down to it, when he was 
trying to really condense things down. This is the law and the prophets. Just love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another, and you're truly my follower. This is how they will know. Everyone will know that you're my follower if you are loving one another. Seems to be what he's saying. Maybe a best, best way that we can understand, if that's what was heard, was what did his first followers understand of his saying? What did his first followers understand of the way that he was mapping out for them? Let's take a look. I don't know if you've ever delved into some of church history in this way, but to take a look at what the first followers were understanding about Jesus' way is fascinating. In the second century, where we're talking about several of these, first and second century, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. It was being persecuted. But it wasn't persecuted uniformly or systemically. It was kind of a don't ask, don't tell type of relationship. So if you didn't cause any problems, if we didn't hear about it, then we're going to leave you alone. But the problem was that these Christians were living alongside non-Christians. And the non-Christians and the Christians, there was an antagonistic relationship of the non-Christians. So they would report the Christians to the authorities and then the persecutions would ensue. So it was kind of, you know, uneven, but it was always a threat. Always a threat. And so by the second, early 2nd century, around 125, Emperor Hadrian was wanting to find out what was really going on with these Christians because the reports that were coming back from the non-Christian antagonists were that these Christians were into all sorts of horrible activities, horrible illegal activities, and of course they wanted them to be punished for it. So Hadrian commissioned several people to go out and just observe the Christians and report back what was going on. And one of them was Aristides, who was a second century Greek philosopher who eventually converted to Christianity. But he had a report that he brought back and delivered directly to Hadrian in 125 AD, 125 CE. And part of it goes like this. The Christians, O king, have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, from whom they receive commandments, which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope. You've got to love that. These weren't just mindlessly followed rules. These were commandments that they had engraved on their minds. Same way that Deuteronomy says, have the law written on your heart. Whole different trip, right? They know and trust God from whom they receive commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not have others do to them, they do not do to others. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. They walk in all humility and kindness, 
and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. There is that line. They love one another. Tertullian was one of the earliest Christian theologians. He was from North Africa, from the city of Carthage, which is in present-day Tunisia. And he was one of the ones also doing the same thing, was trying, in the face of the oppression, in face of the persecution, in face of the false accusations, was trying to make a defense for Christianity. And in 197, he wrote this, We are a body knit together, as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation. There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if anyone likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. For they are not taken thence and spent on feasts or drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons... But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that leads many to put a brand upon us. They say about us, Behold how they love one another. Behold how they love one another is the defining mark of a Christian in the second century. Justin Martyr, another second century theologian, sketched Christian love this way. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. And Richard Foster, who is still with us, wrote a book called The Freedom of Simplicity, and he talks about this same period in church history. And listen to what he says. In the period following the apostolic age, so that would have been second half of the first century into the second century, there was an exuberant caring and sharing on the part of Christians that was unique in antiquity. Julian the Apostate, an enemy of Christianity, admitted that the godless Galileans fed not only their poor, but ours also. There was an exceptional freedom to care for the needs of one another in the believing community. The Didache, which was a first-century catechism of the church, the Didache admonished Christians, Thou shalt not turn away from him that is in want, but thou shalt share all things with thy brother, and thou shalt not say that they are thine, and shalt not say that they are thine own. By A.D. 250, Christians in Rome were caring for some 1,500 needy people. In fact, their generosity was so profuse that Ignatius could say that they were leading in love. And Bishop Dionysus of Corinth could note that they were sending supplies to many churches in every city. We gain a helpful glimpse into the caring Christian community from First Clement, which is a non-canonical epistle. And it, quote, Let everyone be subject to his neighbor. Let the rich man provide for the wants of the poor. And let the poor man bless God, because he hath given him one by whom his needs may be supplied. 
And Tertullian cataloged a long list of groups that were cared for by Christian believers. Christians also provided for those who lost their jobs because of faith in Christ, especially actors. Actors couldn't continue to be actors because it was such an immoral practice back in the day, and so they needed support when they converted to Christianity and couldn't act anymore. Bishop John Chrysostom witnessed, Every day the church here feeds 3,000 people. Besides this, the church daily helps provide food and clothes for prisoners, the hospitalized, pilgrims, cripples, churchmen, and others. And when epidemics broke out in Carthage and Alexandria, Christians rushed in to aid all in need. Behold how they love. This was the mark. This was the identification. This was the definition of a Christian in those first few centuries. These early Christians took Jesus literally. When he said, they will know you're my followers by your love. Love each other as I have loved you. This is exactly what they were doing. With anyone and everyone who was in their path, anyone who was close enough to the best of their ability because they saw this as the mark of their followership, the mark of their Christianity. Lastly, just a short paragraph from a sociologist. His name is Rodney Stark. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, where he was analyzing the survival and growth of the early church in the first few centuries. And he writes this, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. And that last sentence is the key. They brought a new culture capable of making life in their cities more tolerable. And notice that he's talking about Greco-Roman cities, specifically. Now, what about Orange County cities? See, that's where we have to go. And this is really important for us to think about, because it's really easy to go social justice warrior here with everything that I just read to you. It's all about dealing with these causes, the homeless, the poor, the destitute, the, the, the ones that have been uh, persecuted, the ones that have been imprisoned. All of these causes can take the place of what Jesus is really talking about. There is a difference between Greco-Roman cities in the 1st and 2nd century and an Orange County city in the 21st century. They had absolutely no social safety net. There was nothing for widows and orphans from the government point of view, from an administrative point of view. There was no way for people to connect in any way other than what they did for themselves. Back in the early part of the 20th century, it was service clubs in the United States that filled so much of the gap, and the churches filled the gap 
until social services kicked in under Roosevelt. And as the government took over, these other entities backed off. The church was that entity. And because of life lived at a subsistence level, subsistence level in the first and second centuries in antiquity, with slavery and all the other practices, disease that they didn't understand, no medical technology, life was lived on the edge in a way that the person right in front of you, day in and day out, had these basic physical needs that needed to be addressed. And love required, love demanded a response to that misery that they were seeing. But here in our culture today, we have safety nets. We have medical technology. A lot of the immediacy of the physical needs that they were faced with every day that was right in their face, we don't see. Now you're going to say, of course we have these issues. In fact, homelessness is becoming a bigger issue right here in San Clemente. Yes, the issues are here. But who is it that you see day in and day out? Are you connected day in and day out with homelessness, with, with subsistence-level poverty? Are you connected with people who are victims of earthquakes and fires? Are you connected with people who are being persecuted or imprisoned? Most likely, not so much. But you are being confronted with, you are being set right face-to-face with somebody every moment of every day, practically. How is it that we respond to them the way the early church responded to the people in front of them in an apples-to-apples sort of way, both of us being authentic and legitimate followers of Jesus? That's the question that we want to ask ourselves. Because if we just take this and try to transplant it into a social justice quest, love can remain very remote One thing about Jesus was that he was intimate. He was connected with the person that was in front of him. And when he talks about love, that's what he's talking about, an intimate connection. It's easy for us to send a donation to starving people halfway around the globe or maybe around the block, but it's like job done. But what about the person who's right in front of you? Love demands something that is more immediate and and changes as, as we move through you know, we're going to see affliction, but it's going to have a different cast. So what does loving one another look like in our lives? How do we make life more tolerable for those in our blast zone, for those in our sphere of influence, those in our path? How do we live so that people will say about us, behold how they love one another? That's what we need to figure out. How about this? How about just saying what we mean and meaning what we say? How about keeping our promises that we make? Even something as small as we're going to meet you at a certain time in a certain place and we actually do it. How about cherishing relationships in such a way that you would never do anything that would chip away at the hard-won connection that two people have to do that dance to get to the place where there's true vulnerability and connection, to never want to do anything to disturb that, to chip it away, to lose that. How about simply expressing gratitude, even to food servers at a table, or to a spouse, or to a child, to anybody? How about giving compliments where compliments are due? 
Why is that so difficult sometimes to just give a compliment? Because you always also got to be able to receive a compliment, right? When you get complimented, what do you say? Thank you. <laughs> Don't start off with, oh, you know, it was all the Lord and all those other platitudes. Just thank you. That's all we got to say. How about celebrating the success of others without any envy whatsoever? Absolutely being as happy as they are for whatever it is that they're celebrating without a thought for yourself. You know? How about calling someone for absolutely no reason just to say hi or texting just to check in? How about listening attentively? How about giving your full presence wherever you go to whomever you're with so when they look in your eyes, they're not just seeing the back of your head, they're seeing someone looking back at them and they know that they know that they're with someone. Someone who hears, someone who cares. How about caring about the quality of the work that you do day in and day out? Because it really does affect your customers and your co-workers and everything else that you do. How about being pleasant, courteous, cheerful, even under duress? How about that? And all this before you send the first dollar donation to hunger relief or to help fire victims from the recent fires or whatever else you do. That's wonderful as well. We're not excluding that. But what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about wanting, loving one another, what these people were reacting to when they said, behold, how they love, was this one-to-one connection. To walk down the street, see a need, respond to it. Walk down the street, see a person, connect with them, respond to them, whether they're of your race or not, your church or not, your political party or not. How about everybody is equal in your sight and deserves everything that you have to give another human being, regardless, even though, just because. There's a restaurant that we like to go to, especially after Tuesdays. Um, when, when Tuesday nights, the band plays and at 8 o'clock, 8.30, when we're done, we head over to this restaurant to just, uh, you know, just kind of talk and air out a little bit. It's a nice time in the middle of the week on Tuesdays. And we go to the same restaurant almost all the time. And all the time we go there, there's the same waitress that I've noticed. And uh, she's probably, oh, I don't know, late 40s or so. Very Hispanic. English is definitely her second language. And do you remember Charo? The Chachi... She's like Charo. This lady has energy off the hook. And remember, this is 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. So this is at the end of a long shift, just before closing time, when really they just want you to clear out so they can go home. And she is running around. They play great music, too. And it's usually like, you know, R&B and stuff. And this woman is singing. And she's dancing up and down. And she comes up to you. And she can't keep her shoulders still. And she's talking about her son. And, her, and, and you know, she, how much she loves her son. And he did this. And, oh, you know, and she's going on. And I'm just watching her go back and forth. And it is just so great. And you can't help being caught up in that energy. You can't be caught up. And you think about, how in the world does she do that? How in the world? You know, there was a movie 
And uh, it, it was a pretty good movie. But there's this one scene that just galvanized me. And this man who was pretending to be a knight finally gets caught, and he's in the stocks. And Prince Edward, Edward, the actual crown prince, comes up to him. And he says this line to him that sticks in my mind. He says, your men love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. Your men love you. You have a relationship that shows in the loyalty, in the connection that you have with your group. If I knew nothing else about you that tells me about your character, that tells me what I need to know. Now, I know that this waitress cries. I know that this waitress fights. I know she gets depressed. I know she's wrecked relationships. Of course she has. She's a human being like every one of us. But at the end of a long shift... Week after week after week, consistently, she can bring that kind of energy to what she does. She can bring that kind of joy to sing and dance her way through the last you know, hour of her shift. And she can make me smile every time I come into that restaurant. She makes life more tolerable for me every time I'm in her presence. If I knew nothing else about her, that's enough. Is it enough for you? These are the questions that you need to ask. Are you making life more tolerable for those that you are with every single day? Because Jesus is trying to tell us something really, really important here. All the things that we think this is about all the things that we think we're supposed to do and the bars that we're supposed to meet and the theologies that we're supposed to know and the practices that we're supposed to perform. And Jesus is saying, just love one another as I have loved you. That's how they'll know that you're my people. Behold how they love one another. Let's keep that in the forefront of our mind with every choice we make every word that comes out of our mouth and every moment that we share. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making this so simple. It's still difficult for us, of course, but it seems that simplicity is the quality of your heart, that you are a simple God, once we understand enough about who you are, that we can enter in, that we can feel safe enough, that we can feel risk-free enough. So help us continue to grow in this area, to spend time in silence, in some kind of solitude, where we can hear and we can see what's really going on in our lives where we can clear out the distractions and see the very simplicity of what this is all about. Help us go through whatever complication we need to. Help us learn whatever it is that we need to. But always with the idea that that's just a vehicle. That as soon as we can get to your simplicity, we can let go of the complexities and just be with you and be with each other. It's so beautiful what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for all the witnesses. Thank you for everyone who is our teacher, both living and dead, ancient, modern. Thank you. 
for giving us so many examples to see how we can live our lives. We want people to say of us that we love as you love. Help us to do that, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.